Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Welcome to episode number 311 of the Effortless Swimming Podcast. Today is a highlight reel of our last 12 months on the podcast, based on our most popular episodes, so those that got the most downloads, as well as some of my personal favorites and some parts that I found insightful, inspiring, eye-opening, some of my favorite bits from the podcast throughout the year. So let's get into it. The first highlight is from episode number 266 with former professional triathlete and triathlon coach, Tim Reed, discussing the changes that he had to make in his open water swimming so that he could make the front pack because he said he had the speed in the pool but wasn't able to match it in the open water until he changed this. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much he touched on this before, but it was something I thought I should bring up. But when I first year or two, I was racing pro. I was swimming faster in the pool than I ever did later in my career and I could not make the front pack and I was trying to swim like a swimmer and I actually got so frustrated with it. I went to LA and started training, did a block of training with Jerry Rodriguez over there and the first thing he did when he saw me swimming, he's like, you've got to stop trying to swim like Ian Thorpe. You're not flexible enough. You don't have the feel for the water. What you have is a high VO2 max so you just need to get your stroke rate from 65 to 75. And I think you start making the pack. <laughs> and that's literally what we worked on. I just, just rated up. It looked a lot more messy, but especially when you're in the, the bubbles of the people's feet in front of you, mm. I didn't, I didn't have that range of motion anyway to get a really nice catch at the front. So by t- getting that faster turnover, I was getting an extra 10 strokes per minute and I wasn't falling off the back of the pack anymore. And I left that six-week block in LA and every race for the rest of the year, instead of getting out two minutes behind the pack, I was right in the race from the start. And I think, yeah, it's you might be able to speak more on this than me, but I feel like for open water swimming, especially on feet, the how pretty it needs to look is secondary to the just the basic physics of pushing yeah. water behind you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so true and actually i sort of went through a similar thing where my background was was competitive swimming in the pool and then i started when did i start tries i think i started tries in 2015 but i sort of started doing open water swimming from about 2008 and the evolution from say 2008 where i was a, a pool swimmer over the next eight years or so it just my stroke started to get scrappier and scrappier and but i was swimming really well in the open water and i had some really good swims in the few triathlons that i did and open water races i was going well but then i'd also do this one pool race every year it was touring country champs and i had a friend who's a very good pool swimmer he was on the olympic team and he coaches a lot of good swimmers and he saw me swim the 400 freestyle and he goes that looks hideous that looks your stroke looks so bad and i'm like i'm thinking like all right, that's a kick in the guts, but you're you're right. It looks like an open water stroke, and it just it wasn't pretty in it. It wasn't that quick either in the pool, but it was so good for open water. And I found it hard to sort of have those have those two because I'd just gotten so used to swimming for the the open water. But yeah, it did not look good. <laughs> it wasn't that quick in the pool. Even if people aren't on feet, I'm interested in your opinion. Why is it that that scrappier stroke seems to work pretty well? Like, is it because of the chop and the currents, or is it the higher buoyancy of salt water or? Well, I think all my races, I'd say, were with a wetsuit on. So, you've, yeah, you've got that that buoyancy and then obviously the, the salt water as well where you're just better off having that faster stroke rate because you're just sitting so high in the water that you can sort of get the, the stroke rate up and you need to get to come over quickly 
you can't do it with this Ian Thorpe-like recovery. You're just better swinging that hand over the top, getting it in. So yeah. I think that's partly where that scrappiness comes and from. It's fatiguing too, just even in a wetsuit to, to yeah. have that neoprene around your elbow to then do that high elbow catch. I find it a lot of our athletes, we really go, you know, go for almost a straight home recovery or just a relax, whatever feels natural recovery in your wetsuit. And if you want to go high elbow and pretty in the pool, that's fine without one, but it's just too hard in a wetsuit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, yeah, pretty much with the wetsuit on, as long as you're not swinging really low and flat over the water where it's causing this sort of, you know, side to side movement. It doesn't matter too much how you're coming over as long as, yeah, as long as you're not too low, low and flat there. So it's, man, it's something I had to learn as a, as a coach, originally coaching pool swimmers to then coaching triathletes and open water swimmers. And I think, and I see a lot of coaches going through the same thing that I went through coming from a, a pool background where there's a lot more emphasis on looking good, being smooth, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, you've just got to have some other allowances there for the triathletes. And that's such an interesting story about you going to see, see Jerry there. And I actually had Dan Atkins on the podcast who coached a lot of the ITU guys, guys and girls in Australia. And he had Michael Bowl next to him, who's probably the best Australian swim coach at the moment. And Bowley said to him that you know, with these athletes, like they haven't got the range of motion, the technique is okay, but they're not going to be swimming like swimmers. So just get them as get them as fit as you can to swim, you know, as they need to swim. Don't yeah, don't worry about trying to perfect everything with their stroke. Just get them as fit in the pool as, as they can, and that's what's going to help them be really yeah. you know, really good ITU swimmers. Next up, we had episode number two hundred and seventy-two with Brant Best, who has coached swimmers at the highest level here in Australia. And in this episode, Brant discussed the concept of softness in swimming and how it relates to optimal tension and power. And it's a way to think about conserving energy while maintaining maximum speed. Now, you mentioned softness there. Do you want to talk about what you mean by softness? And I want to sort of preface this with had a swimmer email me this morning. He's sort of struggling to go beyond that 100 meters without feeling totally, totally gassed. And in his email, something he mentioned was for the first 25, like I feel good. I feel lots of power in my my catch in my pool and i've asked him another question which i'm waiting for him to reply how much effort are you putting into that that catch and pull because if every stroke is like a, a maximum effort each one that is not sustainable no matter how how good you are so when you talk about softness what are you talking about there well if we're talking about myths and misconceptions i think the, the myth is that the maximum amount of power you put on the water and, and also the maximum tension is going to produce the maximum speed and that's we know that's not the case Look, it might be the case over 15 metres. We're even finding that's not the case, even over shorter distances like that. But if you have maximum tension, you, I can't stand here and hold my fist closed at maximum tension for 47, 48 seconds without getting very, very tired and, and running out of juice in my shoulders and, and in my hands. These guys have got their physiological range of, of responses happening and they're trying to do that from the start. So for me, the tension needs to be optimal rather than maximal. And then when we're looking at extent, extending that across and your swimmer might be going a minute or a minute 10 or even 55 seconds, or if he's very, very good at going 50 seconds, you can't hold maximum tension. You can't probably even hold eight or nine out of 10 tension for that amount of time. So you've got to find the right amount of tension in your hands to extend across the race. So obviously we don't want to have zero out of 10. Did a did something recently with a, with a team where we dropped their tension to about six or seven and they were only going to slower over 25 metres because they were setting better body position, 
they had a better length of stroke because they traveled better because they weren't gripping and switching off their, their deeper controlling muscles. They're able to access better muscles in their core when they've got a little bit of control. Their strength, their stroke length increases. Their stroke rate holds on as well. So the, the basic technique are maintained and probably enhanced by finding that optimal level of control through the first part of your race. It's a long answer to a short question, but that's what I mean by softness. It's not complete softness, but it's just finding and testing out what the optimal range is. So with that, when we're doing this exercise, whether it be on a, on a clinic with some in Queensland or where one of these camps with some in Australia, we're finding out what optimal is. For me, if a swimmer's swimming at 12 seconds through the first 25 and they're at maximal force and then they have a crack at one and they might be 7 out of 10 and they're 0.2 slower, I'm happy with the 0.2 slower because we're going to gain much more than that on the back end of the race. We might gain a second on the second 50 and I'm happy to give up 0.2 of a second to gain, a sec- to gain one second on the back of the race. So it's just about finding where that sweet spot is to be able to come home at the speed that you want. And is this them judging their own force, tension, like their perceived tension? Yeah, it is. And it's hard to judge and it is a trial and error. I spent some time with one of our very good clubs in Brisbane yesterday working this out, just going through repeat 30-meter sprints yesterday, called them sprints because we started going, they tried to go very hard at the beginning and we found that they went. Equally hard, if not faster, a little bit lighter. So it is a trial and error thing. We'd like to be able to quantify it as close with, closely as we can. We're, we're finding out with our, with our swim better devices that we're working out that peak forces aren't exactly what we're after if we're going to get peak speeds as well. What we're also finding is that the, the peak forces that we're, that we're seeing when there's maximal application, we get higher peaks, but we don't get the, the width of impulse. So we're looking at our force versus time curve, which is my go-to, which I, I love looking at, we want to get as maximum volume under the under the curve as we can. When I'm looking at the swimmers that are putting maximum force and we're getting really high peaks, but we're also getting gaps in force through the middle of the through the middle of the stroke, which are easily identified and quantified. And honestly, so far when the athletes look at it, they can't believe what's going on. And it's not a question as to whether they are or they aren't losing force. They can see where it is and they can fix it a lot more quickly and they buy in a whole lot more quickly which I think is, is super important mm. when we're trying to sell this concept to our athletes. So, again, going, going a little bit deeper than the question asked, mate, but, yeah, quantifying that is massively important. Up next, we've got professional triathlete Joshua Lewis. On episode number 279, he and I were discussing the importance of putting yourself out there and pursuing something that maybe you're not very good at in the beginning, but how taking that risk and making those scary decisions that feel scary at the time can lead to the personal growth and the enjoyment that at that time you may not have thought was possible. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think back to when I first started coaching. So I was at university first year and I was living on campus at Melbourne University and they had a swim squad that was training twice a week and the coach there was was finishing up and someone I think said, oh, look, they've got a coaching role there. You know how to swim. Like you'd be, you might be good at that. So I, I took on this coaching role and my, my dad was or is a swim coach. My granddad was a swim coach as well. But I never thought I'm going to be a swim coach. It, it hadn't entered my mind. But I did like teaching people. I did like working with people. And I think my brain was very much oriented in that kind of direction in the, the teaching, coaching. Anyway, it's what I, I really enjoyed. Just based on school, like I would, wouldn't tutor people, but I'd, I'd help them with different subjects and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed it. And then so I got this coaching role twice a week, enjoyed it. One of the swimmers there said, oh, we've got a, a master's club. Our coach there is leading. We'd love you to 
come and see if, if you want to do it and ended up coaching seven sessions a week there for about eight years and at that time I started effortless swimming while I was at university and then just sort of started that while I was coaching for about 12 13 hours there at this master's club and yeah like same thing I just sort of fell into it but realized that I loved it and then just see what you really enjoy doing and you just sort of follow that follow that path so yeah for me as well it wasn't just an active decision where I'm like all right what do I want to do with my life you just especially at that age you just got to figure out what it is that you're good at what you like and how you like to think and what you're doing at the moment is is teaching architecture at, at university and so you're obviously sort of thinking that way as well and you're coaching triathletes as well so you're probably very similar sort of mindset to, to mine I imagine. Yeah I'd say definitely very similar and the way that you describe well I say falling into it and I realized that I explained my transition into professional triathlon as falling into it as well but it it's far more we should give ourselves more credit I think because we've both put ourselves out there to do things which we thought we might be good at or had an interest in and actually pursued it so I think that I always forget that I've put myself in the position to do these things and it whilst it is falling into place and things like that it's it's actually far more you've given yourself the opportunities you've put yourself out there you've explored what you might be interested in and I I mean I'd never have it any other way like I've definitely I've definitely never been shy to put myself in positions like try and help other people I was always like putting myself out there to like be a year rep or tutor people before I started actually tutoring after university it was there was an option to, I think, tutor younger years. And I would always like put my name forward just because I enjoyed it. And then, yeah, it was, again, almost a seamless transition. I, I went for an interview at university, not for tutoring necessarily, but I think it was for a graphic design role. And then they were just like, oh, no, actually, we'd prefer you to tutor if that's okay. Your skills are more apt for that. So I was like, amazing, literally amazing. That was what I'd prefer to do anyway. So it was like, again, falling into place, but you put yourself out there for the interview or whatever it was. And that's where I really, really put my passion for teaching, which I very much find similar to coaching. I think we were saying before, like teaching and coaching is a very similar sort of thing. You're just delivering information to people in a way that they're able to understand it and then also execute it. So yeah, like for the coaching side of things and teaching, I absolutely love the puzzle of delivering information to different people in different ways so that they can actually achieve their goals. So, yeah, no, it definitely sounds a similar sort of kind of trajectory as to what you found with your teaching and coaching. I always have to remind myself that people who are starting out swimming, and it's the same thing with triathlon, is that can be a very big step for them if they don't have a background in any of the sports or even if they've got a background in running but they're new to to swimming or to cycling it can be quite nerve-wracking for them it can be people can be quite reserved and very conscious about how they look or in the water what they're doing those sorts of things so getting into a sport like swimming or triathlon can be a big life decision for people so just I have to remind myself that like not everyone's comfortable or confident walking into the pool and like you don't know how it works in the beginning you don't know that you've got to go around in a circle and get in the the right lane and all there's all these little rules that we have to learn and so even just some of those basic things can be can be life-changing for people when they when they learn them and in terms of putting yourself out there I think it's 
like those things that do that you hesitate to do that are a little bit scary are the ones where you look back and go i'm so glad i did that and some of those ones for me were when i started this podcast which was about i think it was about 10 years ago now like this was before podcasting was cool i started the podcast because my coach said look you should do a like start this podcast and i was like so i thought about it for six months and then i'm just like all right i'll just whatever i'll do it and i had a guest michael Klimon, who's an australian olympian and he was my first guest and i was so nervous talking to him i was just asked i was there like an, an interviewer just asking him questions and there was no no back and forth because i'm just like i'm this who wants to listen to me first of all and then i can't believe this australian champions decide to come on my podcast but i'm so glad i did because had i not taken that step we wouldn't be talking. Most people probably wouldn't know about effortless swimming and and I wouldn't have developed and grown as a, as a person and as a communicator. And I've, I've learned so much from this podcast with guests I've had on and just improved my communication skills because, because of this. And we've been nearly 300 episodes in and I'm just so glad I took that, that step. So it, it is those decisions that can be a little bit scary initially that you often look back at and go, God, I'm glad I, I did that. On episode number 286, we had Olympic gold medalist Ryan Murphy. On this episode, Ryan discussed how in the early days of his career, he was very much driven by wanting to compete and beat the top swimmers in the world. But in recent years, that motivation has shifted and it's changed. Has your motivation changed in the last five to 10 years? So sort of in your earlier days of your, your career, do you feel like you were driven by different things than you are now? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think in leading up to, you know, leading up to the 2016 Olympics, like it, it was, I was just like a young buck, like, you know, I just wanted to get out there and race, like, and, and the, the improvement curve was, was so steep that it, you know, every time you got into the water, it was like, all right, I'm going to best time here. That's, that's going to be, that's going to be a good race. And so the motivation then was like, all right, I'm chasing, like, I want to, I want to do some of the things that. You know, Ryan Lochte and Tyler Cleary were doing in the 200 back. I want to do the things that Matt Grievers and David Plummer are doing in the 100 backs, really like studying how they're doing things, trying to do, you know, trying to be like create a player mode. Like growing up, I loved playing Madden and like you could create a player however you want. And, and I kind of viewed the way that, that those guys were doing things as a menu. Okay, what can I learn from Lochte? Like what can he, what, what can, what does he do that I can do? And what are some things that I would maybe want to do a little bit differently? And you kind of, you look across enough good swimmers and you can make those, make those decisions in that way. And I would say coming off of, yeah, not coming off of 2016, leading into to 2021, I think my confidence got to the point where it's like, all right, like, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more on me. Like I'm trying to optimize me. So like, what am I doing that I think I could do a little bit better? And you, and you do look at other swimmers to to figure that out, but it but it becomes like every every person is want to lean into your relative strengths instead of just copying what other people are doing. And and I would say now, like where I'm at is is I'm really interested in all of the things that correlate with a good performance. So so looking at really like a lifestyle of success. And all of the things that I could do to to help myself have a great performance. Can you talk a bit more about the lifestyle of success that you you mentioned there? So, are you talking more things outside of the pool? Just how you go about your daily life is it a, a, a bit more of a 
like a not a wholesale approach, but like a, a bit more of a looking outside of just the swimming portion of, of your sure, daily yeah. life? So, I mean, like when you're when you're looking at swimming, I think there's there's a tendency to I mean, obviously, first, you're going to look at like your your physiology and your technique. So like, am I in great shape? Am I swimming the most efficient way possible? And that's like, obviously, a great place to start. But I think that's like, I think that's kind of just like baseline, like, at the Olympic level, like, everyone's in incredible shape. And the majority of people have also really good technique. And so like, beyond that, like, what are things you can do to, to be even better? And so like, then you're parsing apart, like, okay, what's my nutrition look like? What's the optimal, what's the optimal like eating plan for me? Like at what times of the day, what, what types of, what types of meals am, am I eating? What are the macros in that meal? How does that change throughout the season on the recovery side? Like, am I, am I doing the right things to recover practice to practice and, and really looking at the different ways to do that? So are you someone that responds to, to, to massage better or physical therapy or chiropractor? Like there's, and then there's so many products that are coming out to, to also help with, help with recovery. So it's like, what did, what did Hyperize come out with? Like, is that, is that a product that, that I should use on the, you know, the mental fitness side? Like you, you definitely want to walk behind the blocks with, with a clear mind, understanding your strategy on the sleep side just making sure that, that you're staying on top of it and, and really like digging into that and, and making sure that you're not, you, that you're not overtraining and, and kind of looking at, at things through that lens. So, I mean, those are just a couple of examples, but like everything you do in the day does impact performance. So most, I mean, throughout the day, like it, it's honestly subconscious for me now, but like a lot of decisions are made with performance in mind. Before we dive into the rest of today's podcast episode, this episode is proudly brought to you by Form Smart Swim Goggles. They've been a longtime sponsor of the podcast and they are my go-to goggles when it comes to tracking my training sessions and being able to see what's happening in real time through the goggles. And we know swimming is a highly technical sport, but without the guidance of a coach on deck, identifying and addressing technique flaws can be a challenge. They've recently added a new feature to the goggles, Head Coach. And this addresses that problem head on. It gives them as improved access to their technique awareness, focus skill development, and in-app education and analysis. Head Coach provides real-time visual coaching via the Form Smart Swim Goggles augmented reality display. During and after a swim, Head Coach provides swimmers with technique feedback using two types of metrics, form score and head coach skills. Form score is a measurement of overall swim efficiency ranging from 0 to 100, defined by your pace and your stroke length. Head coach skills encompasses five key areas that will help you identify where to focus on improving with your efficiency. Head roll, head pitch, set pacing, interval pacing, and breathing time to neutral. And after completing a session, you can check back in on the form app to track your progress. And Head Coach provides swimmers from beginner to expert with an unprecedented level of data-driven guidance and understanding, enabling you to boost your performance and your speed. Get your pair of Form Smart Swim Goggles today. Click the link in our podcast description or use the code EFFORTLESS on checkout to get 15% off your Form Smart Swim Goggles. This podcast is also brought to you by Skillist, the ultimate digital coaching platform that's making waves in the swimming world. 
Imagine having the opportunity to train with Olympic and world champions like Kyle Chalmers, Ryan Murphy, and Brent Hayden. Well, with Skillist, that dream is now a reality. Swimmers, you now have the chance to work with the absolute best in the sport, gaining insights and guidance from these elite athletes like never before. And Skillist isn't just your run-of-the-mill coaching platform, it's a game changer. Here is what sets it apart. You can discuss training programs, receive detailed stroke analysis, and even develop race strategies with these incredible athletes and coaches. It's like having a personal coaching session with an Olympic champion right in your pocket. And excitingly, coaches from around the world can also tap into the power of Skillist. Coaches can use Skillist's amazing tools to train their students, analyze videos, and incredibly connect with swimmers from across the world as well. So whether you are a swimmer or a coach, go to the App Store, download the Skillist app today. That's S-K-I-L-L-E-S-T. Download the Skillist app today and get started. And only for our Effortless Swimming Podcast listeners, we're giving away our Art of Triathlon course free, as well as a technique analysis online through the Skillist app from me for free as well. Go to effortlessswimming.com forward slash Skillist offer or click the link in this podcast description and you will get the Art of Triathlon swimming course for free as well as a technique analysis from me through the Skillist app. And now back to the podcast. On episode number 278, we had Brian Johns, former professional swimmer and head of technology at Form. In this episode, he was discussing how to find the sweet spot between your stroke rate and stroke length. Have you got any sort of advice for those listening about how they could find their sweet spot with stroke rate and stroke length? Yeah, absolutely. And like to kind of build off that point and carry it through to this is that like with the goggles, we have real time stroke rate. And like when I was swimming, it was like touch the wall, wait for the coach to bark it out to me. And to be able to see that stroke rate in real time as you're swimming, I think is a big way to understand that relationship between distance per stroke and stroke rate where, okay, you're doing a 50 and maybe like you have a sense that it's supposed to be like 60 strokes or like your stroke rate supposed to be about 60, but the start's 70 and the end's 50. Hmm. It's like, well, you're not really training in a way that's reliable, that's going to affect, affect your race. Or if anything, you're actually like training in the opposite way that it might actually be hurtful for your racing. And if you want to be there, you actually have to learn how to be smoother at the start, hold on to it and just like roll on that stroke rate. And so thinking about how to find that sweet spot for the stroke rate, I think it really comes down to understanding, like for me, the, the distance per stroke piece has always come first where it's like the distance per stroke is your technique. Then you apply the technique to your stroke rate and that comes with training. And it's like, in theory, you could tell somebody it's like, go in and do 90 stroke rate. It's like, well, they can physically do it, but not in a way that's going to be helpful for their long-term success. You have to be able to learn your technique and then it's like, okay, your technique right now and your stroke count right now has yet 45 stroke rate. Let's try and keep the same technique, hold the same stroke count and bring it up to 50. And right there, you're going to get some improvement. And then you might find that as you make some sort of other technical improvement, increase the stroke rate your, te- your distance per stroke may not increase like in the first length of the 200, but your seventh and eighth length do. And then that's how you really get the technical reliability going from start to finish. So to find that like sweet spot of stroke rate, I think it comes really down to what are you training for? So if like you're trying to train for like a 100 meter freestyle or a sprint triathlon or an Ironman, it's a lot of different demands between that. So having the end goal in mind, know what you kind of need to go 
for that and then work backwards from there. Have your goal. My goal shouldn't be X stroke rate. How am I going to train that here? And then you find that you're accomplishing it a little bit earlier than expected. You can build it up and be actually better than you had anticipated. Mm. We do this set of seven one hundreds, like a almost like a ramp test, where in our eight week faster freestyle course, which we've we've which we've just got added to. So if you've got form goggles, you can basically just add those workouts or those sessions to your to your goggles. Now, one of the things we do there in week week eight, I think it is is the 7100s test and we'll get them to bump up their stroke rate by four strokes for each hundred. And it doesn't have to be four, you could do do it less, it might be three, because four is a relatively big jump. But what we see there, and if we start them on 56, they'll go 56, 60, 64, 68, 72 and so on. And if you look at the the time and the strip time and the stroke rate, and also I get them to measure their perceived effort as well. And if you're wearing a heart rate monitor, that could be the same thing essentially but we we find there's typically a, a, a sweet spot there where some people will get to say 64 strokes per minute and let's say their time's 130 and then they will go up to 68 strokes a minute 72 strokes a minute but their speed doesn't actually change because their distance per stroke has shortened so much and they're really just spinning the wheels but the perceived effort is increasing so then they're going backwards it, it's not working for them so it can help you find the sweet spot that way and just you know if, if you can sort of if you see that and you do a, a test like that it gives you a bit of an idea of where you might be looking to sit maybe a 1500 meter swim or a 1.9 k k swim and if you see when you when you're doing this that there is no change in speed with any difference in in stroke rate then we really just want to work on just some basic technique because the feedback that i get from a lot of people when they first start with me is i've only got one speed I can't go any faster. I can't go any slower. I've just got this one speed. You can change that. That can be fixed. That can be changed. But I think it just comes down to knowing some basics of technique and making sure in training that you're not just swimming at the one speed. Make sure that you're giving yourself the chance to actually vary your your speed and, and adjust it. In episode number 263, this was a solo episode where I was talking about how to find the root cause of the issues or the problems that you're experiencing in your swimming. We look and see we've got that crossover with the arms. Okay, maybe it is you just swing your hand around too wide and then it comes across. Maybe that's the case, but also might be that you're over rotating and that's causing you to, or you're, you're like you're over rotating, that's kind of throwing your timing off and causing the arm to, to swing around. So you can work it back from those couple of things to work out where should you focus. So to go through those one more time, the first thing we want to look at is body and it's head, kick, rotation, and arms. So I think that's a great way to analyze the stroke and what's the order of things I should be looking at them in. And if you are looking at a video of yourself, you've recorded yourself, you're comparing it to some of the videos on our YouTube, some of the analysis videos there, then you can compare some of the aspects that we like to, to look at there and compare it to say a perfect stroke like Dan Smith or Key Melverton, but you can also go through that order and look at things in that way. And if your head is moving all around the place, but your body position, your body line, your body position's fine, then you may just wanna start with your head position. So I thought that was a really good way to approach them. And so we want to look at the cause and not the symptom. Another example of this is I was getting a really, really tight, like mid back, sort of thoracic and sometimes lower back. And 
I would only get on the days where I was sitting down for three or four hours at a time. And so I would try and stretch, I'd go get a massage, you know, get it fixed, that's great. But the cause was, I had a really crappy office chair and it's taken me way too long to make a change to this. But finally, I saw a friend post about a chair that he had good success with. So I bought this chair and since switching over to this chair, had no back issues, so much better. But it just took me a long time to, to realize that. And I think speaking personally, I, for myself, I know that when we do look at these, when we do have things that come up, too often to try and fix the, the symptom, the thing that's come out of it, but we don't often look at and treat or change the cause of it. So this is this is my way of wanting to show you that there is maybe a better way for you to approach the things that you're doing in your life because I know that when I have actually tapped into the cause and made a change there, life's been a whole, whole lot better. And you can do that with your stream stroke, you can do that with other aspects of your life. On episode number 275, we saw Dr. Jim Taylor discussing a very simple mind hack that has a significant impact on your physiology and your emotions. Another mind hack has to do with smiling and in two ways. Now, I think I did talk about this a while ago in one of our earlier ones, but this I'm gonna add a little twist to it. So smiling is a very strange thing. It has a tremendous impact on our physiologies and our emotions. So a lot of people think, well, you're smiling when, you ha when you're happy, but it also goes both the other way where if you smile, it makes you happier. And there's been a lot of research that's found that if you simply force yourself to smile, your mood lifts and you feel less pain for a couple of reasons. First of all, as we grow up, what do we learn we, how we're feeling when we're smiling? Well, life's good, I'm happy, and so on. Also, smiling releases neurochemicals, endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, that actually make us happier and our, natural, our body's natural painkillers. So, so this is a little hard to do in swimming, but I, I do it every day when I'm in the pool, is I'll actually smile during a workout. And, and obviously, after, let's say, I'm doing a set, sets of 100 or 200 or whatever, I'm, I'm hanging at the wall and I'm, I'm breathing hard, I'll smile. <clears throat> and I don't mean to, like be having a great time because when you're sucking wind, and I train part of the time up in the mountains of Northern California at 7,000 feet, that's really unpleasant, I can assure you. There's no joy there either. But, but, but simply going like this, smiling is a motor skill. Simply raising the side of your mouth produces those same feelings. Now it's not the same as actually genuinely feeling those, those emotions, smiling for genuine reasons. But even when you're hurting, you can often find reasons to smile. Like I'm pushing my limits, I'm challenging myself, I'm getting stronger, I'm pursuing my goals, whatever it might be. So when things get hard, simply forcing yourself to smile. And you should, this is a great just life thing. You know, you're driving the road and you're stressed out because of the traffic, just forcing yourself to smile. Because it's hard for our bodies to think and our minds to think and feel in ways that are inconsistent with, with what the messages our body is sending us. So if I'm going like this, it's hard to be really angry because the message my mind is getting from my face is, oh, wait a minute, but, but you're happy. And so, so it, it goes, okay, and then it makes, makes the physiological changes. So simply smiling is a great tool to use in the water, on the bike, on the run, when things get hard, force yourself to smile. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you, know, you, I, you actually feel better. So that's part one of the smiling. Part two is this. There's been some fascinating research done in a human performance lab where they have a cyclist on an indoor trainer with a TV screen. And it might be something like Zwift or something like that. And, and they would flash smiley faces below the, the level of consciousness. So, so the people riding and looking at the screen can't see the smiley face consciously. But the mind picks it up. It's called subliminal messaging. 
And, and what they found was that when people are exposed to subliminal messaging that is of a smiley face, they actually go faster and have lower perceived effort and can push harder than if they see a frowny face or no face at all. Now, here's the problem with swimming. You can't put a, a smiley face maybe in your goggles or something, but you can, pick, you, you can picture the smiley face because that's just like putting it on that screen in your mind's eye. And when I do my effort, my training cave, I don't like to call it a pain cave. It has sort of negative connotations, but I, I call it my, my training cave. I, I printed out a smiley face and put it up above my TV when I'm doing indoor, indoor workouts. And so when I swim, I'll also, in addition to smiling periodically when it's getting hard, I just pop that image of the smiley face in my mind. Now, realistically, is this scientifically proven to be able to just put a picture in your mind? No, but, but I think it works. And, it, and if, if anything else, it's a placebo. And so I'm going to stick with it. So smiling has, is this really powerful tool that, that we can use. And if we use it on a regular basis and we train ourselves to use it during those hard times, we're able to get more out of our. On episode number 288, we had Olympic gold medalist Cole Chalmers discussing how he's been using underwater filming and GoPros since 2015 to improve his swimming and his skills. Can you talk a bit about how much of that you've done over your career and how you like to use it and that have improved with that kind of feedback on a consistent basis? Yeah, feedback for me has been probably the biggest aspect of my swimming career, I think. I think I'm you know, naturally pretty strong and faster the water and powerful but being able to actually use that to my advantage by you know putting I don't like my what the, the feedback that they're giving me into place to swim faster and be more efficient is, is what's been you know the driving force to me actually improving over the years so I think you know I started working with skill acquisition probably early as 2015 with underwater cameras and GoPros and as we've kind of progressed and I've had a bit of success I think the funding into our into swimming in South Australia has probably gone a little bit more so we've been able to acquire probably better equipment and gain that little bit more knowledge from you know me racing against other guys around the world or things that I've done to be able to improve myself but you know just that constant feedback of when I'm in the water just videoing every single turn we have the the big screen in the in the pool is is kind of a live stream of our turns it's on a 50 second delay so we're able to look straight up on the screen and see the turn that we just did or occasionally we'll swap it to the other end to see the finishes that we're doing and um you know then i have a skills coach there that's able to give me feedback straight away with you know how, how my feet are hitting the wall how i'm pushing off the wall you know my fly kicks my breakout whatever it might be that i'm working on in that period of time which i find super beneficial when i'm a i'm a visual learner so i have to actually be able to see what they're what they're talking about and then try to put that into practice so i know that you know if it's if it's something on my turn i kind of have to do it they have to show me what i'm doing wrong and then i have to get straight back in the pool to do it to be able to learn that skill and and acquire it but i know that i definitely wouldn't be where i am today without my skills you know i used to think back in 2016 or early days i probably used to win races by being one of the fitter fitter swimmers in terms of my back end and but if you watch my skills from probably Rio, it's probably some of the worst skills you kind of see. You know, like my turns, probably two to three fly kicks. And then it's my head comes straight out of the water on my breakout. And my finish was terrible. I remember in that race thinking I'd lost the race just on my finish. So um, over the years, I've got better and better at my skills. And I have to do that if I'm going to match the likes of Caleb Dressel. In the 100 freestyle, his skills are amazing. His dive's incredible. And I've learned to watch a lot from watching his dive or his turns and his underwater fly kicks and breakouts and then trying to put that into practice on myself and 
I think that's what's allowed me to get to get better. And have, have you found that what you've learned from those skill acquisition coaches with how they how they analyze it, how they go about teaching you, have you done much work with younger kids in sort of clinics or just in, in squads where you've been able to take that stuff on board and then pass it on to those younger kids who are up and coming? Yeah, definitely. Like an example of that this year, probably being on the national event camp on the Gold Coast, we split up into our strokes. So I was with uh, 100 freestyle guys and we've got a couple of young guys coming up through there like uh, Flynn Southam and Dylan, Dylan Andrea that are both really keen to learn and both looking to me for advice. And I think, you know, we did a morning where it was just kind of based around turns and I'm kind of almost giving more advice to them than what the actual skill act that we had there was giving to them because I think I've been learning, you know, freestyle turns for such a long period of time. I do them however many hundreds of times a day probably that I'm able to kind of look at their turns, see exactly what they're doing wrong and then give them the advice, which I found really cool. And they were both super eager to learn and both super keen to be able to then put that into place so quickly. And they're going to be important parts of, of my relay next year. So the faster that they can turn and the faster they can swim, the better. But, but yeah, definitely the kind of skills that I've learned from being coached by skill acts for such a long period of time has allowed me to probably retain that information to then coach the next generation. And I've done a few swim clinics where I've been able to do that. And But it's something, an area that I definitely love doing is helping the younger kids that are coming through. Because my time in swimming is probably coming to an end a little bit, you know, like I'm at the pointy end of my career, whereas these guys are start just starting up. And if I can help them kind of take over from where I'm at, you know, it's just going to be more beneficial for, for Australia really moving forward. On episode number 276, we had Annie Donaldson, who completed the Ocean 7 within 12 months and broke the record for it. Here, he was discussing how he rediscovered his passion for swimming and what that meant when it came to changing his old goals, where he didn't quite reach the heights that he wanted to in the professional swimming world, but he was able to shift and then go on to actually break a world record and do something that very few people have actually done. I've dedicated so much of my life to swimming and I think I was neglecting other areas like my career. So I'm an accountant. And so I wanted to spend a bit more time pursuing that and growing and building a career and thinking about life after swimming. And it was a bit of a shame. I, I probably left the sport not having really achieved the things that I wanted to or feeling a bit unfulfilled and perhaps in my own view, you know, as a bit of a failure. So I was, I was a bit burnt out from it all. So you know, I didn't actually have any intentions to, to come back to the sport, like not in a competitive capacity at all. But, you know, it's, it's funny what happens in life. And during the coronavirus, I found myself coming back to swimming as a way of managing my mental well-being. One of my friends during lockdown invited me to come swim along the coast. And through those swims from Trig Beach in NWA to Sorrento. Yeah, I just re rediscovered this passion for the sport and, and swimming. And that's just how much I missed it. It's an incredible thing as part of my life. So yeah, was was very fortunate in that regard. And, you know, blessed that that happened to me during, you know, a worldwide pandemic. What is it about the sport that you think drew you back? I think there's a number of things. I mean, Obviously, there's the physical benefits of swimming. It's a full body workout. But I think from a mental aspect, you know, you're in the water, but you're with nature, you're out in the element, and there's time for you to be alone with your own thoughts. I don't think there's many things out there in today's world and society where that happens. You know, you're always connected. You're always, you know, 
if you go on the train, everyone's looking at the phone or listening to music. But when you're in the water, it's just you and, and you know, and, and nature. And I think there's something very freeing and liberating about, you know, you're swimming and it is peaceful. There's a breathwork element to it, which is, I think, has, you know, a very calming effect. And then once you've done your swim, you know, there's, there's the community aspect of it and all these people around you in for the same reasons and you know with many of them working towards particular goals so through the process of these swims i got started to get quite fit again and you know with a bit of encouragement from that friend that invite first invited me down a guy called martin's movie he suggested maybe maybe you should revisit some of your old goals and 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 see what happens and so from there this would have been in mid 2020 i decided to get back into swimming and have a crack at trying to win the Rottnest Channel Swim, which is the big open water swim here in Perth, Western Australia. In episode number 293, we saw Olympic medalist Brent Hayden, and here he was discussing in the lead up to the Olympics, the importance of teamwork and some of the challenges that he and the other relay swimmers faced in the lead up to the Olympics and what they were able to do to turn that around and actually use it to drive them forward. Well, talk me through that, that relay. So you're on the Canadian team, obviously, you let out, well, you guys made the final, first of all. You let out the team and you the ended up going 47.99. So you're th- were you 37 at the time, 37 years of age? Yeah, 37. Yeah, so oldest, oldest person to swim under 48 by like five years, which is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah Jason Lezak, I remember when he, he did that and that was at Beijing. I'll still remember that that anchor swim he did. Mm. Right, we were over there in like lane one or lane two or something like that when he when he did that. And so to be able to to like have his name there and now like seeing seeing my name above his there, it's you know like we st- like I just want to say like we kind of like you know we we all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? So the fact that Lezak did that, you know, showed us that we can keep being competitive as we get older. And now that I've done it, um, I think we're going to be seeing. Like, I don't expect my name to be at the top of that list for, for much longer. I think we're going to have swimmers that are now opening up their eyes to the longevity of what's possible. And, you know, probably like maybe even after world champs, we might already have another older, oldest swimmer ever under 40 seconds or after Paris. Right. So, but mm. it's, it's cool to be able to, to see my name at the top of that for the time being. What was it like hitting the wall and looking at the time and going, wow, that was, that was unexpected. How, how was that? I mean, I think everything kind of leading up to that moment, it wasn't necessarily just, just the 47.99. Like at our Olympic trials, we, we were at risk of not even having a team to qualify for the Olympic Games because we were ranked 15th and you know, only top 16 actually get to go. So we came together to do a time trial to hopefully just get us a better add-up time to, or sorry, uh, just to get a better time so we can, you know, feel a little bit safer in case other teams behind us did a trial and, and knocked us out. And I think we moved up to, 12th i think with that time trial and one thing that i was telling this the guys was the story of watching the south africans at the 2004 olympics right was it i think darian townsend lyndon ferns rake neathling and roland schumann nobody expected them to to win a medal and they came out they believed in themselves when no one else would and they they won the gold medal so i wanted to kind of share share that experience with them so i use that as a as an example and just like we went out there you know i also told them like there, there's still a chance that this this could be it so swim this race like it's a final in the heats 
And so we did. Every guy stepped up. You know, we had Ruslan Gaziev, who was who swam as our alternate in the in the heats, and he really stepped up big time as well. So they got us that lane. So that gave us the opportunity. And still, people still didn't believe in us. They're like, you know what, guys? Like, we have a chance to medal, right? And I guess le- leading off that that relay, I knew it was going to hurt coming back. I like because I didn't train necessarily um, focusing on the 100. I was training for the 50 because I felt that was probably the most realistic place uh, or realistic event for me to be doing a comeback at my age in such a short amount of time, right? But I guess my my coach, I guess, was secretly training me for 100 without telling me, right? I just show up and just do what my coach tells me to do. Um, So I I just wanted to not put any limits on how on what my body was capable of on the second length. I wasn't going to save anything for, for the swim back. That's funny. I was just thinking about that movie Gattaca. There's a, there's a scene in that movie where the guys are swimming out and the one guy keeps wanting to turn around, swim back, but he doesn't want to get beaten. And finally he asked the guy, you know, how are you doing this? And he says, I never saved anything for the swim back. So I've always thought of that, that line. And, and so in that moment, that's kind of the way I decided to approach that race as don't save anything for the swim back because I don't know what my body is capable in, in this moment or what it's capable of. So I, I just went out as fast as I could and I came back and, you know, when that pain's uh, taken over your body, uh, there's something about being on a relay when you've got three other guys on there swimming with that kind of helps elevate you and, uh, and push through that pain just a little bit more sometimes. And I, I touched that wall and I turned around and, you know, I see, Josh's feet enter that water. And in that moment, it was the first thing that went through my mind was that I feel like this was kind of like a passing of a torch this moment, because here I am at 30, 37 years old. Josh was born after I made my first national team, right? At the, <laughs> at the 2002 Commonwealth Games in, in Manchester. So I kind of feel like that moment is kind of like a passing of the torch. And then I, I, I noticed that time and seeing that 47.99. And, you know, the last time I saw a 47 up there was the 2012 Olympics 10 years earlier. or sorry, nine years earlier. I felt really proud of what I did. And I knew that I did what I needed to do to give ourselves uh, a chance. And we almost won a medal. Like we, were, we were so close. On episode number 298, we saw former Ironman world champion Craig Alexander And here he was discussing the most important piece of advice that he received early on in his career. Did you have a particular mantra or piece of advice that you'd gotten from a coach or you'd come across that you kept close to your heart during your career? Is there something that's been this thread throughout your career that you've uh, used as your philosophy or your way of approaching things as you've gone through this triathlon journey? Yeah, there's there's been a few things. So one piece of advice I got, and I got a Early in my Ironman career, actually, I just stepped up in distance to do Ironman for the first time, and it was just a casual conversation I was having with a lady called Paula Newby Fraser, who won Hawaii eight times, was one of the all-time great triathletes, and was still working in and around triathlon in media and, and doing other things. And she just said to me, you know, something she used to ask herself in training every day, and also multiple times throughout all her races, is, "What can I do right now?" What can I do right now to improve my situation? I think I think that's a good that's a good mantra because sometimes we get overwhelmed with the gravity of the task at hand or the length of the race we're about to undertake, or if we're you know we arrive at the pool and we've got a set of twenty four hundreds to do. The enormity of it can be overwhelming, so it's good to break it down and and 
you know, into little bite-sized pieces. I always found that, you know, asking that question, what, what can I do right now? What's, what's my immediate focus in the next 30 seconds, the next 60 seconds, the next five minutes? What are the things I really need to be focusing on? So that's something that helped me a lot. And I had a couple of really old school swim coaches, both Olympians, had a huge impact on, on my career and my life. And, you know, one used to say, there's no time like the present. You know, if you're thinking about changing your swim stroke or changing your training or, you know, there's, there's no time like the present. Why put off doing things that we can, we can start working on right now? And another one used to say, don't quit before the magic happens. You know, it's, it's a long journey. Nobody becomes a world champion overnight. And there's going to be, it's, I mean, I guess it's an analogy I like, you know, an endurance sporting career. It's like investing in the stock market, you know. There's going to be peaks and troughs. You've got to be, you've got to be good enough and lucky enough to be able to ride the waves when they come along. But you've also got to be robust enough and durable enough to ride out the storms when they come along. So, so you're still around when the next wave comes. So, you know, you, you just have to hang in there. You know, this, this coach used to always say to me, you know, when, when things get really, really difficult, that's usually when, you, when you're on the cusp of something really special, either a, a little leveling up in performance or a performance breakthrough. So, yeah, you can't quit before the magic happens. You've got you to hang in there. So I, I think they're good mantras to have. I just think a lot of the things we do in life, whether it's education, academics, sport, business, whatever, they're long journeys. You don't ascend to the great heights overnight. I mean, the great proponents in, in all those arenas will, you know, will tell us that. So I think by virtue of the fact it's a long journey, you just understand there's going to be a lot of low points. So you've got to, you've got to be able to ride them out. One great lesson I also learned is to surround yourself with good people, have the best people around you. And that starts at home. It starts at home with your family um, and your partners, husbands, wives, um, parents. You know, you've got to have great people around you. And that extends in sport to your training partners, your coaches. So... You know, having people around you to share the journey when it's great, but also to, to, you know, help you take some of the lumps when it's not so great, I think is a good lesson. Yeah. One of the things you, you mentioned there was just about what can I do in this, this moment? And one thing I got sort of came across a couple of years ago, it's about being in the moment where nothing in your past exists, nothing in the future exists. It's just this moment right now that we've actually got. And if you can make the most of that, whether that's through having that presence there where you're not distracted by your phone you're not thinking about the future where you're just really in the present moment that's where you actually have the power because nothing outside of that exists now i think there's a certain truth to to that obviously we want to be planning for the future and making good decisions for our future but the the only thing you can do right now is is what's in the moment and I think that applies particularly in training or if you've got to make a split decision in a race as well. It's like, well, don't worry what's going to happen 10K down the road on the run. It's like, well, what can you do? That's it for this episode. I want to thank you so much for listening to the podcast this year. If you haven't left us a review on Spotify or iTunes, I would love it if you could. That helps us reach more people and show that this is hopefully a podcast worth listening to. I remember starting this podcast more than 10 years ago it was. And I was quite nervous about starting it. I thought, who wants to listen to me talk about swimming? And I thought, look, I'm just going to try it, see how it goes. And I'm really glad that I stuck with it. And the amount of people that I see at clinics and camps or run into them at the pool who say they listen to the podcast, it's quite amazing to me that so many of you do. So thank you so much. It really means a lot. And this is something that I really enjoy doing. We've, I'm going to continue to release an episode every single week through the holidays. So I'll keep that content coming 
We've got lots of new and exciting guests coming up over the next couple of months as well. And my aim is to continue to make this podcast better, more valuable, more helpful, and to keep bringing you new things that you can do to help improve your swimming or just learn about different things that people are doing. So thanks very much for listening. Hope you have a great holiday. We're going to continue to bring out these episodes. Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.